Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Diva Behavior. I'm your host, Molly Molshine, and this is our episode on Princess Diana. Princess Diana is probably my favorite celebrity in history. She's got it all. She's rebellious. She changed the game in so many ways. She didn't give a crap about what the establishment thought about her. She did whatever she wanted. And everyone who knew her in real life says she was really funny and really nice and just really cool. So we love her. My guest today is Carly Ledbetter. She is the royal reporter for HuffPost. She writes to the palace and they respond, you guys. That's really cool. She's like a legit royal expert. Um, When I used to write for the New York Observer, I wrote to the palace once or twice and they never responded. I just got harassed on Twitter by middle-aged Kate Middleton fans because I said I didn't like her clothes. (laughs) Um, I like her clothes most of the time, by the way. She just went through a rough patch. So we're going to be talking about Diana. We're going to be talking about her in the context of this book by Andrew Morton. It's called Diana in Her Own Words. And it's really Diana in her own words. She was recording answers to Andrew Morton's questions secretly and then smuggling the tapes out of Kensington Palace so that he could write this book. This book was one of the reasons why the Queen like made them get a divorce because Diana basically admitted to all the cheating and she talked about how nasty people were to her in the royal family. She just spilled all these secrets that no one would have known about otherwise. It was really like a groundbreaking earth-shattering moment when this book came out and it's something that I hope Meghan Markle will do one day. On the topic of Meghan Markle, we talk about her a little bit too. We recorded this before the most recent statements came out from Harry and Meghan about their battle against the press. Um, So we didn't talk a lot about that. I wish we got a chance to because I would love to know Carly's thoughts on it. But I'll just briefly tell you guys my thoughts on it. Um, I think their battle against the press is a little misguided. Actually, I think it's very misguided. It actually really bothers me. I think Harry and Meghan are great. I think everything they're doing is fine. I don't think they've done anything wrong ever. Um, I think in the context of the things that royals are supposed to do, they're doing a great job. A lot of the criticism that Meghan gets from opinion writers and commentators is very similar to criticism that Kate and Diana got before her. In fact, some of it is exactly the same. Like, Diana was accused of turning Prince Charles into a vegetarian. Meghan has been accused of making Harry eat more vegan food. It's just history repeating itself. It's, you know, people have a lot of anxiety about women marrying into the royal family. It just sort of exposes everybody's sexist, classist, elitist, and now racist tendencies. So these stories are bound to come out. 
she's definitely got an extra layer to contend with. People have especially recently been really nasty about her. There seems to be some people who are just never going to like her no matter what. And I think there is definitely an element of xenophobia and racism inherent in that. But at the same time, I don't really like how Harry and Meghan in their crusade against the press are painting the media with all one brush. They're treating the media and the press like it's this gigantic evil monolith. It reminds me a lot of the way that Donald Trump will talk about how you can't trust the media and all journalists are bad and it's really bad for society to talk that way about journalists. I think we need more media literacy. I think people need to learn how to read news stories better. I think people need to read more news, not less. Um, I think that their current lawsuits and all the things that they're saying against the press and the media are not going to help anyone in any way. I don't think it's going to help curtail the negative opinions about Harry and Meghan. I don't think it's going to help members of the public to enhance their media literacy. And I don't think it's going to help the press to do their jobs in an effective way. And by the way, I think that if anyone's to blame for negative stories about Harry and Meghan, it's the people that work within the palaces and are constantly leaking this negative information about Harry and Meghan. And there are a lot of different people who agree with that point. I'm going to post a link in the show notes for this to a BBC4 podcast that I listened to that has an actual royal correspondent explaining just how much Harry hates all media and all reporters regardless of who they are or what they do or what they write. It's just not a healthy mindset for anyone, let alone someone with as much money and power as the British royal family. So I would love to hear other people's Uh, thoughts on this you can leave voicemails for the show by following a link in the show notes you can email me info at divabehavior.com please follow me on twitter and instagram at molly molshine that's one l in molshine uh you can follow carly on twitter at ledbettercarly or on instagram at carly.ledbetter you can follow diva behavior to the ends of the earth one thing i like to suggest is whenever you are around someone who's asleep, use their face to unlock their phone and then go into Apple Podcasts and Spotify and uh, subscribe to Diva Behavior. It takes a village to raise the numbers on my podcast, you guys, is all I'm saying. So thank you so much for listening and enjoy. Some people think Diva's a bitch. Who's a diva for you? Would you say, are you one? I never said that. Diva Behavior. Diva Behavior, the podcast. So, Carly, you are you cover the royal family a lot at HuffPost. I do, yes. I'm the royals reporter for HuffPost, and I get to chat with Kensington and Buckingham Palace to like confirm or deny rumors sometimes. So it's as a history major, it's a really fun job to have. Wait, I didn't know you actually talked to them. Yeah, you can email them or call them. So if there's ever something circulating where sometimes places will write up like, oh, the royals are never allowed to give autographs. And then someone will give an autograph. And I'm like, is this really a rule? Is it tradition? Or do you have anything to add? So sometimes they, I mean, they're always really good about getting back to me. There are some things that they just naturally won't comment on. 
Um, but yeah, it's fun to be able to like reach out to a palace and get a reply back. Yeah, that's great. I mean, when I used to cover them for the Observer, I never called anyone. I was so lazy. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to find their contact info, though. I mean, it's not like something that they publicize because they don't want a ton of people out there. Oh my gosh, I didn't, I forgot that you covered it for the Observer because I'm used to your work with Galore. Yeah, I mostly just did fashion stuff. I wrote this one really deranged piece one time about how uh, I, it's so weird. I made a graph. (laughs) like a bell curve showing who can get away with wearing flesh colored tights and how on one side there's Kate Middleton and on the other side, it's like Miley Cyrus and Lady Gaga. And I was like, this is going to break the internet. Like as soon as people realize that you have to be either like a princess or a pop star, it's so interesting. And it got like five hits. Oh, don't you love it when that happens? You're like, I poured my heart and soul. I'm so passionate about this. And like your mom's like, really good job, honey. Loved it. And you're like, okay, but I need, I need a Twitter moment or something from this. Yeah. The internet is a weird place. I know it really is. So you must be busy lately with all the crazy stuff that's going on with like Harry and Meghan suing the press and everything. Yes, it is crazy. Um, I can definitely see why they're suing the press. Like their statement is just so interesting. I feel like it's a really historical moment. And Mm. yeah, it's crazy looking at Princess Diana and then looking at Meghan and how they handle the press and stuff like that. But yeah, they were just on the royal tour. And then a lot of people, a lot of the royals reporters that follow them were like him suing or actually her suing. Um, The press totally overshadowed the tour and what it's like balancing out their good and their bad PR. And yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating time to cover the Royals right now. Yeah, for sure. And then you have like the rift between William and Harry, which I believe is very real. I believe is very real too. Do you think that they've healed the rift or what do you think? No, definitely not. I think that there's very, like very bad blood there and I don't know when they're going to heal it. What do you think? I think especially with their move to Windsor. Um, and then there were even rumors that Harry and Meghan were going to try to move to Canada or Australia or Africa. And when I reached out to Buckingham Palace, they didn't flat out deny it. They were like, there are still plans in motion. That's not their exact statement. But I was like, it's so crazy. Like, there must be some truth to it then, because that would be such an easy thing to say. At least, like, we won't comment on it, which would yeah. not be fueling the fire. Um, but yeah, I think it's also a matter of attention too. like Harry and Meghan are getting so much more attention than the future King of England and what that's like. And yeah, them splitting the foundation. I definitely think the rift is still there. I think we're getting closer to a solution or at least some sort of PR solution, because now I feel like everybody, even casual friends that I have who don't really follow the Royals are like, oh, the brothers are fighting. And I'm like, man, someone needs to do their PR team. I'm just glad people have stopped saying Megan and Kate are fighting because I don't think they are and I don't think they ever were. I don't think they ever were. I think um, like Katie Nichols, a fellow or another Royals reporter. I I, I shouldn't say fellow. Um, She's just like the Royals reporter. She's amazing. But she was saying that it was always about the brothers and never about Kate and Megan. And I think we can see that in the way that they interact, too. It's just like such a classic trope of pitting woman against woman that it's like, you can't use that anymore. It's 2019. And it's like just juicier when it's about women, in my opinion. It's like the same reason why women get asked what they're wearing on the red carpet 
is right. because it's interesting what women are wearing. It's not interesting what guys are wearing. Whereas, like, if two women are feuding, it's like, ooh, yeah, there's got to be a lot of interesting layers to that. But if two guys are feuding, it's probably because one of them, like, farted on the other one. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. It's just, like, it's so much less interesting. I think with the brothers, it is interesting because we've never publicly seen them like at war with each other or like, I mean, which for them, British people is just like not sitting together at church or something. So it's not actually like a full fledged war, but yeah, it'll be weird to see how they interact going forward. Or like, you think that you would see a lot more of the families together, especially because they're pretty close in age, but. Right. I thought it was so wild how at that polo match, that was the first time the babies met. Right. And it's so weird because you're like, they're, they're both in the spotlight. They're both under so much pressure. You think that it would be like the couples are the only people that really understand each other. And especially having young kids being like, how do we, you know, like, how do you raise a royal child normally? I have absolutely no idea. But right. yeah, it was weird that that's the first and so far the only photo op that we've ever seen of oh, them all together, weird. right? Yeah, yeah, it's so weird. It is. So just to bring it back to Diana, I feel like the in the... um you know, the relationship between the two couples right now, it reminds me a lot of the relationship between Diana and Charles, where yes. William and Kate are sort of the Charles fuddy-duddy conservative plays by the rules. And then Megan and Harry are the ones who come in and they're like, we want to hug people. And they're taking all the attention away. And it's just really interesting to see that sort of like repeating itself. Um, It's so funny seeing like the establishment and sort of how much Uh, William and Kate really have to play by the rules whether they want to or not but then you can also see them sort of emulating Harry and Meghan now like trying to William and Kate like trying to hold hands on press tours or I feel like be a little bit more approachable or realize that they also have to switch up their approach if people are gonna still care when William eventually becomes king Um, because yeah I feel people want real people leading them or at least under the pretense of leading them yeah And yeah, Harry and Meghan seem way more normal. And it's kind of like how you elect a president in the U.S. It's like you want someone that you can drink a beer with. I think that's what it eventually comes down to. And they just seem like a super fun couple that you could relate to. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they're on private jets. They're hanging out with Elton John. Exactly. So (laughs) relatable. It's my weekend, too. So as far as this book that we both read by Andrew Morton, Diana her own story in her true words or some her true story in her own words, whatever yeah, it is. Nailed it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How did you like it? Um, okay. I really liked it and it was really fun reading it now. I feel like I did not remember reading it or like parts of it originally, but I learned so much more about her and really understanding the complexities of her relationship with Charles and how she suffered through bulimia and how that, led to her depression and her anxiety. And I just feel like there are so many parallels now that Meghan Markle's in the picture. You can just totally see how Harry is like, my wife will turn into my mother if something doesn't change. I feel like it's really interesting to see how Diana was blamed for so many of the same things that Meghan is being blamed for. It's insane just how much history is repeating itself. Like with the fact that Charles wanted to go vegetarian and stop hunting and everyone blamed it on Diana. And Diana was like, I don't give a shit about hunting. Like, right. And, and it was the same thing to Megan. 
Right. And how like as soon as he didn't go hunting or like all of Harry's old pals are like were being iced out of the group or, you know, those comments leaking and stuff. And just how Diana always said that she was praised for just existing and what she was wearing. And I feel like when Megan entered the picture, so much of the focus was on what she was wearing or especially transitioning from an American to a more British style. But now that she's trying to do or she has these patronages and she's trying to do more charity work and get involved even my coverage a lot of the time focus on focuses on what she's wearing because I feel Mm -hmm. like that's the initial draw and it's even making me refocus some of my stuff and be like oh we really you know the media plays such an important part in shaping how we view these people yeah and what we know about them and what we talk about when we talk about them right yeah I I thought it was really interesting um how Megan on the South Africa tour or it wasn't just South Africa it was a bunch of countries in southern she, Africa she yeah. primarily stayed in South Africa and then Harry went to Botswana but she she only stayed in South Africa right right okay so yeah I thought it was interesting how she basically wore the same thing every day and she wore repeats almost every day like she wore those sleeveless trench dresses like every right. single day showing that she was all business like she meant business and she really wants to like make an impact and yeah you're right a lot of the attention was just um on how her clothes were all very similar and I also think part of me thought that she was giving hints that she was pregnant again and it is the worst thing ever to speculate on whether or not someone is pregnant but just because she wore the same dress that she wore Um, after she'd announced that she was pregnant on the Australia tour, she wore that like the same second day. And I was like, oh my gosh, I feel like she's maybe trying to send us a message with her clothes or we're all just reading way too much into it and we should be listening to her speeches. Yeah, they'll definitely get pregnant again pretty quickly, I would say. Yeah, I feel like we're going to get an announcement by the end of November, which I I think think so. I really do. I don't know why. I have a post prepped and ready. I just, I feel like... It's imminent, especially with the clothes. Yeah. Um, I think Kylie Jenner's pregnant again, too. Do you? <laughs> oh, I feel like her and Travis are gonna are already back together. Yeah. I just I don't feel like that's a real split or something. Like people are like they broke up. I'm like, I feel like behind the scenes they probably get back together and break up all the time. And we just found out about this one for some reason. But yeah, yeah I don't see them splitting up for good anytime soon. And I think she wants to have, like, another sibling for Stormy. So, and she's been wearing, like, gigantic shirts and everything. So, I feel like all the signs are there. They are. Yeah, I feel like even if she did break up with Travis, she would still have another kid with him to be close in age to Stormy. Yeah, definitely. Um, So, I'm just looking at some of my notes here on the book. So first of all, let's talk about a little bit about how this book came about for our listeners in case they don't know. The fact that this really is Diana in her own words. And what they did was that they smuggled in a microphone and her friend, he was like, he wasn't a doctor, but his name was Colthurst. Michael or something, Colthurst. I also thought he was a doctor. Yeah, yeah. Okay, he was. So he would ask her the questions that Andrew Morton sent in and then she would answer them and Andrew Morton would type up the answers. And he also talked to a lot of her closest friends and relatives. And that's how he put this book together. So this book was like a bombshell when it came out. It like broke the internet, even though there was no internet. If there was, it would have broken it. And it just was like 
you know, earth shattering. So in the version that I read, he also had a transcription of a bunch of her quotes in the beginning, which I loved reading. Me too. Yeah. I was, I was going to say, I feel like that is absolutely the way to do it because you hear all of her own words. And then when you see it later in the book, you're like, oh, Diana really did say this. And this is how she shaped her narrative. Yeah. Yeah. I loved that part. And then there was an epilogue about, you know, everything that went on with her death and everything. The only thing that was confusing with my edition that I read was that I wasn't sure which things were in the book earlier and which ones came later. Yes. I feel like like I need to, I was really interested in that too, to see what they changed. And I also wondered at the end of the book, when they talk about her death, they talk about all the conspiracy theories surrounding her death, which I feel like is super, super relevant now because we're dealing with a lot of fake news. And that's what I wondered if that was in the original version, if people were as like, as into it. Right. I think so with her death, just to skip ahead a little. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, do you get as annoyed as I do when people say she was killed by the media? Because it makes me so mad. I get really annoyed when people say that she was uh, killed by the media because she was very, very clearly killed by a drunk driver. And I love a line in the book where um, the person in question who was driving was the deputy security officer at the Ritz. And um, Andrew Morton, the author, points out, that the driver was driving 100 miles per hour in a 30 mile per hour zone. And no one would ever do that carrying such precious cargo if the boss had not ordered him or Diana had ordered him to drive as fast as he possibly could. Yeah. And he was three times over the legal limit and he was on like two different like mind altering prescriptions. Like, yes, he was in bad shape. Yeah, they said that he was 600 times more likely to get into a car accident than a sober person. And I, I'm i so happy that you get annoyed by this, too, because people are always like the paparazzi killed her. And while, you know, the press definitely played a part and that she was being hunted, again, it's this person on drugs who was, you know, driving drunk that really, yeah. really ended up. Yeah. And no one in the car was wearing, well, one person in the car was wearing seat, a seatbelt, but like. And I, oh, I love all of the detail he goes into with her astrologers and psychics and everything that she would go to all the time. I love that. That was so interesting. As I was reading it, I was like, I'm sure, like, I cannot wait to talk about this with Molly because I had no idea. I was really young when Princess Diana was killed. I think I was, or I was seven and I didn't really know who she was, but we have this, we all have this idea of her and what you learn in history books, but I had no idea that she was so like governed by psychics. Did you? I did. And I actually am working on a screenplay based on that because I'm obsessed with it because like everything, like every Royal has some level of this. It's really interesting. Like even Prince Charles is kind of into it, you know, like I don't think the queen is, but I think for the most part, it's just a side effect of having, of being in this role that you really can't manage on your own and just not knowing what the future is going to hold and feeling like your life is too big for you to handle. I think it just tends to push you to look into these supernatural places for guidance, you know? 
Right. And it's also so interesting that psychics, like celebrities all love psychics, where I think it's the same thing. Like they're in this fishbowl of a world and they feel super powerless. Because as I was reading this, I was like, oh my God, this reminds me of the Kardashians and how like eight times a season they bring on a psychic or a healer or they use some sort of like energy healing to figure out their circumstances. And they have like a seance. I love when they do that shit. It's so funny. (laughs) It's so good. I hope the ghost of Kris Jenner eventually haunts me. That would be my dream. Oh, that would be amazing. (laughs) She would make you famous. I would love it. I would love it. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that was, that was a, a definite crazy thing that I hadn't really looked into. And now I want to know everything about it. I want to read everything any of her psychics ever said. And yeah, go visit them in London. If they're I have highlighted all of their names because I'm like, I need to look these ladies up. Yes. But, But as you mentioned, she had a premonition that she might die in a car crash. And she even wrote in a letter to someone, uh, Charles or the Royal family is going to take me out and they're going to do it with a car crash. Like someone's tinkering with my car. I can tell. And it's, it definitely shows the level of paranoia that she sort of was under sometimes just because of her isolation within this like huge Royal machine. And it points to that same paranoia points to why she was in the car with a drunk driver because she was too scared to have palace security officials because she thought that they were going to spy on her and go back to, you know, the queen and tell the queen's men everything that she was doing. Right. I hadn't realized that she went to such great lengths to get rid of her her security detail. Like I learned that from this book because yeah, like in the book it says that she, you know, one by one got rid of so much of her staff and her security because she just wanted to have a normal life which fair enough, but someone should have insisted that she had security or at least a driver so that she wasn't getting in the car with a drunk driver. It's just so annoying to me that like when she was alive, no one thought of this, you know, and nobody was like, like, especially the fact that when she died, she was with Dodi Al-Fayed, who's like a multi-billionaire. Why did his dad not have a driver for him? Why were they being driven around by the drunk like security guard of the Ritz. Exactly. And the security guard like prior to getting in the car was like joking around with paparazzi and saying like, like teasing them. Like, I don't know when they'll come out. I thought the same thing where it's like, I feel like Diana never got her way in the marriage, even in her, in the divorce. So it's astonishing to me that they would eventually just be like, oh, right. Like, we're going to take your policeman away and someone will follow you from a distance. It's like, this is the most hunted woman in the world. And she is still like, she would say to Charles, like, I'm the mother of your children. So it's, it's baffling to me that they wouldn't have like 15 people on her at all time, just so that Harry and William could grow up with a mother. And yeah, when you add a billionaire to it, someone that, you know, is also important because of their money and their influence. It's just, it's absolutely wild that they didn't have top of the line security every step of the way. And that her freedom ended up causing her death. She finally got what she wanted and it led to her being in a really unsafe place. Yeah. It's so sad. It's so sad. And I love that. Oh, you go. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I love that um, at the end when Andrew Morton is talking about the conspiracy theories, he's like, people need these theories that someone was coming after her or hunting her because they cannot deal with the fact that she was just killed by a drunk driver, something that happens to so many people. And I think that that's such an important point because 
Yeah, I, I definitely research all the conspiracy theories and I want there to be more than she was just not wearing a seatbelt. Right. I think it was drunk driver not wearing a seatbelt, negligence on the part of the palace for like the fact that they didn't keep her safe is really unforgivable, especially when you see how shitty they treated her in every other aspect of her life. Super it's good just, point. Like, of course they abandoned her and let her go out and do her own thing. Like, it just makes no sense that they would do that. And also, to a lesser extent, the fact that Dodi Al-Fayed's dad didn't have a driver for them makes no sense. And I also can imagine that, like, when they were her, when she or Dodi was telling the driver to speed up, they were probably laughing. Like, they were probably having a great time. That's exactly what I see. Like, I think back to, you know, not making safe choices in college when you would probably get into a car with anyone at the end of the night. And you're just like, oh, my God, I'm young. I'm free. I'm having a great time. Also, because you're likely inebriated, you're not making the smartest decision of your life. But I picture them, same thing, laughing, having the time of their life, and then just never knowing what happened. Like a Tony Soprano type moment where you're just like, okay, it's, it's over. Also interesting um, that people debate the photographers either helping or hurting when they arrived at the scene. Like someone going in to check Diana's pulse and then people being like, no, he was just opening the doors so that other photographers could take photos. Yeah. See, I'm of two minds with that. It doesn't bother me as much as it seems to bother other people. Because Mm -hmm. if you have you ever read the Diana Chronicles by Tina Brown? I haven't. I need to check that out. It's so good. It's really good. Like, I loved this book, too. They're both really good. And that one, uh, the Tina Brown one, since she's obviously, like, former editor of Vanity Fair, it goes more into the media's perception of her. And it's just so good. I've read it, like, five times. It's amazing. But I need need to get that. You have to get it. You would love it. But she goes more into the detail of what Diana's actual injuries were. And if someone had jostled her the wrong way, she would have died on the spot, you know, like that's what, that's what kind of bad shape she was in. So like if I was going up to a, you know, like a car accident and someone was already calling the cops, I don't know if I would go in there and start pulling people around and jostling their bodies. Like, I don't know what else people were supposed to do. And they probably didn't think she was going to die because she was still alive at that point. So they were right. taking pictures. Like, that's what journalists do. They take pictures. I'm sorry. You right, know, because like, can you imagine them not taking photos? Like what their right. editors would have said? Like, I'm sure at that moment, it's like it's instinctual. Like people take photos in war zones or of starving children. So you're right. right. This is the biggest news story of the century. Yeah. It's just people don't understand the different mindset that you have to have because it's literally your job to capture these moments. And if you don't do it, no one else is going to. And it's not like those guys were going to save her life anyway, you know, and there there was a doctor on the scene who treated her. And like you said, yeah, the first thing when someone gets into an accident, you're not supposed to move them. So that is a really good point. We can't have like, it would have been worse if someone tried to move her than like, and also people said she was, she died 20 minutes after the car crash, like basically at the scene. Yeah. So Let's rewind a little bit to like her childhood and her upbringing. Was there anything that surprised you about it or that you found really interesting? Because just for listeners, I mean, I'm sure everyone knows this, but she was, you know, very blue blooded. Her family is older than Charles's family in terms of like British heritage. She's more English than he is because he's like mostly German. So. Right. I think that that's always a really fun fact that she was so much prouder of her heritage than she was of actually um, 
becoming a member of the royal family. I think I'm always super surprised by the amount of wealth and privilege she has because growing up with Kate Middleton, I feel like I almost associate Kate and Diana as, as having like the same backgrounds, but Diana was just so rich and so aristocratic and was allowed to do everything. Um, I didn't realize that her grandmother testified against her mother in her parents' divorce case and made it so that her mother couldn't have the kids, which basically just happened because her father was nobility, right? Yeah. There was uh, a, yeah, that, her grandma, Lady Ruth Fermoy, is, just sounds like the most terrible piece of work yes. ever. Yes. So she, yeah, she testified against her own daughter, and there was a line in the book that said, in every other divorce, child custody lawsuit in the world, they always side with the mom, but because Diana's dad had this title, they he got the the kids and he got the custody. So then Diana's mom had this reputation as a bolter and as someone who left her kids behind. And, you know, everyone pretty much agrees now that that was very unfair. Right. And then her grandma, Lady Ruth Fermoy, she was she was a lady in waiting to the queen mom. Um, and she would just turn everyone in the queen mother's household against Diana. What did you think about that? That's in- so insane. That's so insane to me because like that is someone that you would totally look to as an ally and be like, you know, this system, you can come in and you can help me. Um, even crazier. I thought was that she helped Diana helped uh, her grandmother in the final days of her death. That, yeah. she fin- that she finally addressed, like, hey, you testified against my mom, and you were essentially evil and starting rumors about me. But then that's so Diana to go through something so terrible, but also be like, I'm going to help you in the last days of your life, and also help by that point, like, help myself a little bit and sort it through with her. Yeah. Um, that was so wild to me. Also, always crazy to me that parents or, like, aristocratic parents send their kids away at, like, seven and are just like, oh, okay. Now you go to school. Sorry. It's so um, weird. So, so weird. And yeah. I I also think it's wild how in the popular imagination at the time, people thought that Diana's dad was this sainted, like, father figure when he was abusive to his wife. And mm-hmm. his kids, I think, saw him abusing her at, at, le- at least once, right? Yeah. And... There was also that horrific moment when she gives birth before Diana was born. She gave birth to a son who was so deformed and he died within a few hours of being born and they would not even let her mom see the baby. They just took the baby away. That would fuck you up for life. For life. And that's what I think is missing from like, I I think you're right. And that we're now learning more about her mother and being more sympathetic to her because yeah, if you go through something like that, and then they said that any woman that had what we now know as um, like, what is it? Postnatal postpartum depression. depression, Yeah. Postpartum depression that that's actually a disease and that needs to be treated. And I feel like for so long, Diana and her mom were both just diagnosed as hysterical women when really, they were both suffering from insane depression because of circumstance. Right. How about the fact that she didn't get to, like when Diana was going through different mental health issues, she didn't get to ever choose her own therapist. The palace would just send her, they sent her to two people and she didn't get along with either of them. So it was like, all right, well, that's the end of that. Right. And then when she eventually, I forget like which one it was because it sounds like she 
tried dozens, but then once she found someone that she liked, he would just say everything to Prince Charles. He would be right. like, this is how the session went. Like, like okay. Like, don't drink for shit. Right, exactly. Oh my God, I'm re-watching Mad Men at this time, so it was exactly what I thought. Oh. Um, I, I also, just jumping to the engagement, my favorite fact that I didn't know was that Diana's sister dated him for like eight months and then because of publicity got knocked out of the way but that both of them had to call charles sir and only (gasps) after like isn't that crazy that only after diana and charles were engaged could she be like hey charles what's up that's so weird it's so dark and so bizarre it's just like the the way that their courtship went i feel like they really weren't alone together until they were engaged yeah I agree. And it's it's, crazy. It is. It's just, it's not the way that we would do anything. And also once they got engaged, she went to Australia for two weeks with her mom to plan the wedding and Charles never fucking called. Yeah. In what world? I, I just, I don't even think that that was like a sign of the times. I think that was just a sign of their relationship and that, I don't know, even then it's so weird to see him as a 32-year-old man and her as a 19-year-old child and just he'd already grown up and she hadn't even begun to become an adult and seeing how much she wanted his love and affection and just in my eyes I don't think she ever got it even during the engagement like there were no real loving moments to speak of. I was really surprised that the book went out of its way several times to mention that he did love her because I just like you said I can't see it at all but the book did say that so I guess either she fully believed that or she felt it was important that the public believed it I don't know right and that I know that he loved the part about her where she was like someone should have comforted you after the death of your grandfather um when I think it was like a very public mourning parade that he had to walk in or a, a church service so I think he loved the fact that Maybe she loved him so much. I don't know. Because even he says so many times, whatever love means. And yeah. I know. Ugh. But it's, I mean, has he ever felt love from his mom or from his dad? Or I don't know. Do you think he has love with Camilla now? I do. I think he and Camilla are in true love. I really mm-hmm. do. I mean, look at how much they've been through. Right. Holy shit. The fact that they are still together and when you see them together, like, I mean, they've grown on me just because of the fact that it's so clear that they really do love each other and that they're a source of support for each other. But did you see the photos that leaked when they went to the beach on some trip? In Barbados? Yes. And they're just frolicking in the waves. It was so cute. They were just like any old people. And I, but I feel like with, you know... In this book, they said that the reason why Charles didn't marry Camilla in the first place, obviously because she was already married to that guy who was like Charles's best friend, and oh, he definitely knew they were boning. We've and got to talk and, about that. Yeah, like he definitely knew and like thought it was awesome. Right. But so <laughs> he watched. So they said that it was because Charles kept kind of jerking her around and wouldn't commit to her, but. Tina Brown says it's because Camilla already had too much of a past and that from the moment that Charles and Camilla met, um, she basically implies that there was an unspoken sort of knowledge that 
they could never get married because she had too much of a past. So it was never even an option on the table. Right, because Charles was supposed to marry an Anglo-Saxon virgin. So my assumption then is that Camilla had already dated more people than... Yeah, uh, and like it was known publicly that she had dated people. Right. But I, I agree with you that seeing them now and knowing what they've gone through, and also just in terms of age, they're just a much even match. And I feel like that is also so important like just reiterating time and time again that Charles was a man and Diana was basically a child also yeah. because she was aristocratic. So even though she was 19, I feel like she was so much younger than that when she actually got engaged. So sheltered. Yeah. Um, I wonder, okay, about Andrew, who is Camilla, Andrew Parker Bowles, who is married to Camilla until 1997. I wanted to hear your thoughts on like, where was he the entire time they were hooking up because I also believe that Charles or he knew that Charles and Camilla had a thing. Yeah. So this also is in Tina Brown's book. She says he was cheating all over town too. Like she basically says that when Camilla and Andrew got together, Camilla was like super devoted to him. And Andrew was this like super hot playboy and he just was never going to be faithful. So then Camilla took back up with Charles after a few years of seeing that her husband was just like not gonna, you know. Okay. Yeah. And it said that he, after their divorce, he also got married like a year later. So to me, not reading Tina Brown's book, but I was like, he must have had also had someone on the side. Yeah. Because if everybody knew, he knew, he knew they were hooking up. Like he definitely knew. There was one line. Oh my God, where is it? I need to find it. I highlighted it, but I can't. Um, find it. There was like, okay, it was the day after something huge happened. The queen in like the late nineties, the queen invited Andrew and Camilla into the Royal box at some event. Yes. It was like during Diana's separation, Diana and Charles's separation, right? Where like Diana after that was like, basically just like, okay, well it's, it's war or it was such a clear, move against Diana that she was was, just like okay well I'm gonna do whatever I want yeah that was so messed up I feel like the queen I mean I've made my feelings about the queen public on this podcast already yes (laughs) reiterate it yeah (laughs) I I don't think she's a nice person at all I think like I just I don't know there's so many issues with her and one thing that really really killed me in this book was when she said that Like repeatedly they mentioned how the queen was in of the opinion that Diana's bulimia was the reason why their marriage didn't work. Right. Not because the son was insufferable to this young woman that was in the firm and had absolutely no allies or friends or anyone guiding her. Yeah. It is crazy to think that the queen wouldn't see how much pressure someone would be under. But I think that the queen now understands just in that after Harry and Meghan um, got married, she did a solo engagement with Meghan. Like, I think now she's learned at least publicly how to act when someone new enters the family, where at least you need to show the public that you're trying. But yeah, it, it was crazy throughout the book, too, that Diana reiterates how much respect she has for the queen and how deferential she was to the crown, despite the fact that the queen obviously thought that she was crazy and the reason that the marriage failed and would never work. 
Yeah, I think she probably just felt like she had to say that because she had to hedge her bets so that whenever the divorce did happen, because the book, the first edition of the book came out before their divorce. So I think she probably was like, okay, I need to not be completely left high and dry in this divorce. So I need to say as many good things about Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip and the Queen Mom and Princess Margaret as possible because those are the people that really pull the strings. Because don't you think that Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip know that Charles is a bonehead? They have to because, I mean, I think Prince Philip has such a hard time with his son and the fact that he'll be the heir. And I think... Doesn't Philip get along better with Anne? I think that they have more in common. Because also, I mean, even in this book, Diana writes about how, like, Andrew is weird, which we all now know that, you know, Andrew. Oh, Prince Andrew, yeah. Prince Andrew and that Prince Edward is just kind of like the youngest and a little bit forgotten. Also, the fact that he shot at paparazzi. I really wanted to highlight that where People have so many problems with Harry's statement about the lawsuit. And it's like Prince Edward literally shot at a photographer. So I feel like I just want to like tweet that out and make that super, super known to the world that um, Harry's statement is not as bad as someone firing a gun at your head. They all, I mean, the royals are so apolitical and they steer so clear of openly saying critical things about any person or group of people except the press. And it is so annoying to me because they use the press and they lie to the press like crazy. And like the press is only reporting things that are coming directly from the palace. Like all of the crazy shit. This is what really is crazy about the Meghan and Harry lawsuit is they're not suing anyone for any of the reports because all that stuff is probably true. They're suing for the one thing that they can kind of try to get an invasion of privacy charge because – The thing is, the royals use the press just as much as any celebrity does. And then at the same time, all they do is whine about how awful the press is to them. And it's just like... Where it's like you want the press to cover all of your like really important charity visits. But then along with that, because you are a public figure and a celebrity that people are so interested in, and you're televising weddings and doing all this stuff, that there is a natural interest. I mean, you're in London, and I know... I hear a few arguments from people being like, we fund you guys, you owe us pictures of the baby. Do you hear that a lot? Yeah, it's really interesting because whenever people talk about how bad the tabloids are here, for the most part, the things that they do is like they'll just twist a story a little bit to make Megan look bad. Or like, for example, saying that uh, the feud was between Megan and Kate when it's actually between William and Harry and right. stuff like that. I think... The daytime TV is where I see the most hatred of Megan and the most, like, racist dog whistling. That's really the bad, like, seeing Piers Morgan complain. Right. Which I think he's he's obviously, and he says this, like, he's only frustrated about Megan because she dumped him as a friend or whatever he claims. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree with you where some of the stories are even, I'm talking about Princess Pushy and stuff like that. It's like, that seems like almost a lot of celebrities would have that. Yeah, kind of it's not the end of the world. Right, but then it's like when you get into like, oh, Megan is bringing this like ethnic thick blood or whatever the Daily Mail reported, it's like, okay, that is entirely problematic and I get why they have problems with 
Those are usually opinion yeah. writers or columnists. It's the opinion, yeah, it's the opinion writers and the columnists and the daytime TV talking heads. Mm-hmm. But where you, those are the issues. It's not the legit reporters who are reporting facts, and it's not the paparazzi because the paparazzi don't shoot them in the UK. It's not done. Right. You know what I mean? Like they yeah. aren't. They just don't. So I don't understand what they're talking about when they talk about that stuff. And I think it's just more, yeah, I think it's just that they don't like the opinion pieces that are coming out because also the really, really shitty stuff is from internet trolls. Like if you go into, I'm sure you know this. Like, Oh, I get so many comments on my stories too. Yeah, and that's where the real disgustingness comes out. But I'm just like... The the factual news reporting that comes from news reporters is the press pack. Yeah, it's not really bad. Like, I I don't understand. So I think the thing is, like, especially with Harry and William, they don't want to face. And I'm just speculating right now. Yeah, we're but, we're all speculating right now. Yeah, I think Harry and William can't or don't want to face up to the fact that it's actually people like the call is coming from inside the house. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Like the it's people within the palace who are planting these nasty stories. Like someone who was at uh, princess Charlotte's dress fitting is the one who called the press and said, Megan made Kate cry. Like exactly. that was one of their paid employees who did that. And right. they can't really dismantle that system from the inside out. It's just not going to happen. So instead, they vilify the press and they say that it's the press's fault for reporting on it. And it's like, I don't know. And I think there's a lot to be said for all the theories that all these stories are coming from different camps. Like that there was one theory at some point that Prince Charles's people were planting nasty stories about William and Harry because they didn't just because they're too popular. So I don't know. What do you think? all that I've also I've also heard those theories too that then William and Harry together would like attack their father's people and try and discredit him or spread stuff about Camilla and then now that Harry and William have two separate offices I think it makes it even easier to have both sides playing the press and making certain things favorable for them Um, and I think it's really interesting that a lot of people are saying Prince Harry didn't tell anyone before he released this statement about the press, that the Queen didn't know, that William and Kate didn't know. And I I see both sides of it. I have a hard time believing that no one else would know and that Harry acted on his own. But then on the other hand, I can totally see him and Meghan being like, no one's no one's helping us out or 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 saying anything when these columnists talk about, you know, really racist things. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think that they definitely acted alone. And I think it's because the other palace officials are like would have told them not to do it. They probably did tell them not to do it. And they right. would have told them to just stop it because, you know, there is this that mindset here in the UK that they owe the public more information because of taxpayer dollars, which I think is true. I mean, I don't give a shit what Meghan Markle's dog is named. I don't need to see... You know what I mean? Like, I don't need to see pictures of the christening if they want to keep that private. But I think the Queen's people would have been like, you just have to deal with the bad press. You just have to deal with it. Like, it's just part of the position. And I think Harry didn't want to just deal with that. But I think the real problem is, I think they're leaking stuff to take the heat off of Prince Andrew because of the Epstein stuff. A hundred percent. I even, like, I think that that's why... um 
uh, Beatrice got engaged because I think it's like she'd only dated this guy for a year and it puts really positive news back in their camp. I thought that like Sarah and Andrew were going to get back together. I don't know why I called her Sarah. Fergie and Andrew <laughs> were going to get back together. Just anything to turn the tides um, and give him some like a boost of good news or I don't know. It's it's really sickening that I don't know if we'll ever figure out how much Andrew and Epstein were involved together and their photos and their stories. And that seems like enough. But I just feel like behind the walls of the palace, like that's where all of the secrets are. I just don't. Yeah, I don't know if we'll ever learn the depth of his involvement. And I agree that that's why there's this whole other media storm to shield away from criticism of him. I think Prince Andrew needs to just go away. He needs to never receive another dime of public money. He needs to get the hell out of the public eye. Like, he just needs to bury his head in the sand. Yeah. I wonder what they're going to do at his daughter's wedding next year. Or, like, I'm sure we'll see him. Well, they said that they're not going to... it, it was funny. I actually like tweeted about this yesterday because everyone's saying everyone's doing this story like Princess Beatrice wants a low key wedding. Like she's not like her sister. She's a chill bride. I'm like, no, her dad's a pedophile allegedly. That's right. why she wants a low key wedding because oh, she I'm doesn't so want to. You tweeted that because also, um, what's her face? Her wedding, the sister Eugenie. Cost, yeah, cost the British taxpayers two million pounds. Two million pounds. Think about what you could have done with that money, you know? And, like, do we really think that Eugenie's wedding is bringing in tax revenue? I don't think so. I don't think anyone is looking at that girl's wedding and being like, oh, my God, this country is the future. Right, right, exactly. And I also – did you see – I need to get this right. It's either Norway or Sweden, but they just stripped the titles of anyone that's not immediately in line for the throne. And some people are speculating – that the British monarchy would copy that, which I think would be a really good idea and definitely help with their public perception where you you kind of eliminate the argument of we're paying that for them because I think that they do bring in hundreds of millions of pounds and that you can see the castles and you can do all of this stuff, but it always goes back to, even if it costs each individual family a pound a year or whatever it is, it's just that argument. We're still paying for their lifestyle. But if you strip away their titles, then... They're they're doing their own thing and their own money. And I don't know, people might like the monarchy a bit more. Yeah, because that's actually been speculated for years that Prince Charles is going to do that when he becomes king, that he's mm-hmm. going to majorly slim down because I don't think Charles is amused by Prince Andrew at all. Yeah. I don't think Charles thinks that Prince Andrew's daughters should be involved in anything, you know? Uh-oh. And I also think that Prince Charles... Is I think that despite how terribly he treated Diana, I think he actually does have principles. And I think he probably is horrified by this whole Epstein thing, like at, on a moral oh, yeah. level, not just on a PR level. And yeah, I think he is going to massively slim it down because there's just there's just no need. Like we were talking about, we just recorded the Fergie podcast the other day. We were doing an episode on Fergie as well. Oh my and God, so the crazy excited. thing about the Royals And it's something that comes up with Diana, too, is, like, they may not have liquid cash from the taxpayers. Like, their yearly salary may be, like, oh, 60,000 pounds, which doesn't sound like a lot. But then Fergie and Andrew, when they first got married, the queen gave them their own, like, giant mansion. And they had a staff of 25. It's crazy. 25 people. Unbelievable. 
Yeah, and it, people are like, oh, it comes from the queen's money. And it's like, yeah, but the queen's money is... Is the, the people's money. She, it's, well, it's the fact that she owns all, all the of land. this property. Yeah, and this land could be owned by, you know, the peasants, but it's not <laughs> because they don't deserve it. It's like, right. it's crazy. It's crazy this is still happening in 2019. Like, when you really get down to it, where it's like, we're still in some feudal society, and I'm still basically a peasant whenever I'm yeah, really is like feudalism. That's exactly what it basically is. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Like between the queen and Prince Charles, they own like so much of the land in Southern England. And the weird thing here, I'm probably going to mess this up. I should bring my boyfriend in to ask him about it, but I won't because no one will understand his accent. But <laughs> <laughs> in the UK, when you buy a house, you buy it either freehold or leasehold. And if you're buying it freehold, that means you own the land free and clear. But mm-hmm. if you're buying it leasehold, you have to renew the lease on the land every 100 years. So every 100 years, you have to pay to continue to occupy that land. And it's so messed up. It's so classist and elitist. And that's the way that Prince Charles and the Queen make their quote unquote independent wealth. That's where their non-taxpayer dollars come from, is from their subjects having to pay to occupy the land that they, like, allow them to be on. So lovely. Yeah. So, yeah, so wonderful. Independent wealth. That reason is actually why my British family left England in the 90s, because they were so, like, uh, they couldn't own a house. And they were like, if we could go to America, we could get land so much easier. So that's why they're now in Connecticut, because of exactly that reason. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. Where were they living? They were living in London, um, and they were trying to buy a house in London, which I think is its whole mess, um, and they were in South Kensington, and I forget the street that they were on. Um, Oh, but I want to ask you, what do you think Diana would be like today? If Diana hadn't died in the 90s, where do you, what do you think she would be doing now? Oh, wow. I don't know. I think she probably would have just kept going with what she was doing because one really interesting thing in this book um, was the way the way they kind of went through the timeline of how the nature of her work changed mm-hmm. because I had never dri- I had never drawn a line in my head between the handshake smile it, royal engagements and the like hugging AIDS patients and walking across landmines royal engagements like right I didn't me either really Yeah, like I knew that she had to push to do the more controversial stuff, but I didn't realize that just how much that stuff was separate in her mind and how she really, really was making a concerted effort to stop like shaking hands and kissing babies and just do the stuff that was going to make a huge difference. Mm -hmm. So I think she would have kept going with that. I think there probably would have been a lot of really controversial moments because they – that stuff is political and that's part of the problem with that stuff right. is once you start talking about whether it's funding for AIDS research or, you know, getting rid of landmines or even women's rights with the stuff that Meghan Markle does, you can only talk about it to a certain point before it becomes political and controversial. And the royal family hates that. Right. Like so, when Meghan spoke about abortion uh, reportedly with someone in Ireland and then that person tweeted about it and then everybody was up in arms where it's like she's not supposed to talk about anything political. But it's like if one of her causes is women's rights then it's, is, is it a political issue? Is it a women's rights issue? It's so intertwined. It's so hard to separate in this day and age. Right. So yeah, like the time when Kate went to that uh, BAFTAs and she didn't wear black for Time's Up. Right. That was so annoying. Like I love 
Kate before that. And then when she didn't do that, I was like, come on, really? I know. And I wonder what the conversations were like. I wonder if she was really pushing for it and people push back or if she was just sort of like, this is the way things are done. And I I don't know what kind of person she is, but I feel like she very much understands her role uh, role as future queen. And I feel like she was probably like, I can't do that. I don't want to ruffle feathers. Whereas I feel like with Meghan and Harry, because they're so in tune and also not in direct line to the throne, I feel like we would have seen them do it. Yeah, definitely. A hundred percent. Also, um, queen, ha- the queen hates when people wear black, but Megan still wears black all the time. She doesn't give right. a shit, which is <laughs> funny. Fuck you. <laughs> yeah. But also with Kate, it's like Kate never ruffles feathers ever. Nope. Waity Katie, like, right? She was yeah. waiting Katie cause she waited around for eight years. Which is wild. But yeah. also I've found from living here and meeting a lot of people, um, a lot of people in the UK and Ireland have like really, really long relationships before they get married. I don't know if it's just my imagination, but it's funny. Okay. Some of my fam- my boyfriend's family is European and they like, even my British family is like, why do you ever want to get married? They're just like, eventually like you have kids and then you get married or we dated for 13 years and then we got married. So I think that that makes more sense to me now. And especially at the end of the book, when Andrew Morton says that the royal family acknowledged they made a mistake sort of pushing Charles to get married, so they let William take as much time as he wanted. Right. And I, part of me hopes that he introduced Kate to royal life or was like, here's what it's like living in the spotlight. Can you handle it? Sort of like what Harry did with his previous girlfriends. Because I've How heard that about? he's proposed to like what? three of them. I've heard, this is all speculative, that Harry actually proposed to prior girlfriends, but like three of them, they were all like, we can't handle the spotlight or be. Oh yeah. That's yeah. what they all said about Chelsea Davy that she didn't want to. And, mm-hmm. and Cressida. Yeah. Is there another, I mean, I only think of like flings, like Ellie Goulding. Love the that fact that they. So random. So random. <laughs> How about the fact that Diana, the day after her engagement arrived at Clarence house where the queen mother lived and there was just no one there to greet her or anything. She was supposed to be moving into Clarence house and Charles wasn't there. The queen mother wasn't there. The queen wasn't there. No one was there. That I, I honestly, I feel like that paints the biggest picture for the rest of her life where it's like no one was prepared and no one cared enough to prepare. Like no one actually handled anything. It seems like like once Charles's staff gave her a bouquet of flowers and I feel like that was the most caring thing anyone ever did for her in the royal family. But yeah. I can't imagine. I don't like showing up anywhere unprepared and then when you figure that you're facing the rest of your life and no one's there to greet you or like even send staff to greet you, it's super ominous. Yeah, and it just shows how they sort of thought and I think still think but have tempered that a little bit that just by virtue of their existence, they're doing enough. The right. royal family. Like they yes. think that just the fact that she's being allowed to join is enough and she doesn't need everything else. She's on her own. Right. She can get her own training. And I, I also loved where you saw Diana's um, rough relationship with the press start because she was like, so many people criticize me for wearing new clothes, but I showed up and I had five engagements a day and I had nothing. And -hmm. I think we see that with Megan too, being like, oh, another new outfit or she's wearing designer stuff. A little bit less so because I think it's taboo to criticize um, someone like Megan sometimes in publications just that you don't want to I don't know, like at HuffPost, I would absolutely never write like, oh, look, Megan has another new outfit. She's a horrible person. But you can definitely see how 
Diana was just so voiceless and had all of these reasons like, this is why I'm buying new clothes. No one's helping me. There's no other wardrobe and how it just sort of spiraled from there. Right. And she didn't have a stylist on staff or anything. She had to call up the editor of Vogue. Oh my God. Where both of her sisters worked, which is so great. I mean, that just shows like who actually works at Vogue. Literal. Right. Yeah. As if you needed a better example. It's like, yeah. Okay. Like people who literally don't ever need to work. Um, but yeah, back to, um, I was going to say Madonna, Diana's (laughs) humanitarian work that she was doing later on in life. I thought it was really interesting how they said Tony Blair wanted her to do a special role where she would go into other countries and broker peace and the palace sort of shot that down. And they were like, if anyone's doing that, it's Charles. But I kind of actually understood the palace there because Mm -hmm. I'm like okay, just because you used to be married to a prince doesn't mean that you're going to be, like, brokering peace in Bosnia. Like, that that's right. too much. Yeah, that was definitely... I, I wanted to see that get played out. Like, I really wish that we'd had any more concrete information about, like, what her first assignment would have been. I know that was in the very early stages, But I definitely agreed with the pals, too, because she was also stripped of her title when they were divorced. So it was a weird situation where it's like, why would you send in this woman with essentially no formal diplomatic training to broker peace between warring countries? Like, what about like in the Cold War? Did Diana help at all between Russia and the U.S.? It was it was definitely very, very grandiose. And I think even Andrew Morton says that, like, it was super simplistic and super crazy but like that's kind of the epitome of diana's dream of like she wanted to be princess of the world and that was a part of it um and she probably would have been good at it but she probably would have also had a lot of trouble with it and yeah like yeah with dictators or something you know right like okay you're gonna bring um diana in with like osama bin laden and like get him to apologize to america like it's not gonna happen <laughs> right that's not how you solve 9-11 like that's what i just that was a i did not know that that position existed either um i know i can't imagine how that would have gone but i going back to if diana had lived what i think is interesting is i wonder if uh, Charles would have left the throne to marry Camilla or if he always would have stayed single at, to become oh. king but like unofficially they just would have like dated for the rest of their lives right that is really interesting or if the queen would have allowed him to marry someone who was divorced like she allowed or essentially allowed Harry to ma- marry Megan. I don't right, know yeah because like, if Diana was still alive that would be a little bit weird right yeah and I think like the tragedy of Diana dying which first of all Charles started bringing Camilla to public events like a year after she died right and planning her 50th birthday and that's why Diana started going on these vacations with Dodie and yeah you can imagine the sort of pressure she would be under or think like okay I don't want to be around any of this when it's you know involved in its own inevitable press storm Um, I thought it was so petty how they took away her royal highness title. Me too. But I think after the statement that Diana put out, I see why the queen, like, for once would want to be vindictive because 
um, after Diana and Charles divorced, Diana put out the first statement. And she was saying that she will get to keep Kensington Palace, her title, her staff. And then the queen was like, oh, this is news to me, basically. And then stripped her of the title. So that I can, was crazy that Diana put that statement out. Like, girl, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? Who advised you? And I think that's where a few pages um, prior to that, Andrew Morton said that she acted as her own press secretary as her staff dwindled down. And she sort of like enjoyed doing that. And that's where I'm like, I think Diana went rogue or with one other person who was very much a yes man. And was like, yeah, you can definitely put that out. Because I think in that instance, even though the divorce is final, you still want to be careful and then make sure that you still get whatever you want. Right. The papers aren't even signed. Like, right. that was crazy. She started to get like, and there's no way that you wouldn't, anyone would get a big head. But there were certain moments in the book where I was like, oh, girl, like slow your roll a little bit. But she right. had no one to talk to. She had no one to talk her down and be like, this is probably not the best plan. Like, right. Yeah, she was like alone in Kensington Palace by herself and she didn't have her kids and she only had like friends by phone. Um, But yeah, I also love that at her funeral when her brother, Earl Spencer, was going off about the royal family and the fact that they stripped her of her title. The next day, his brother-in-law, who was the press secretary for the queen, offered to reinstate her royal highness. And he was like, nope, no way. That was amazing. That really was amazing. That I just I did was great. Yeah, it was it's also just so weird to me that after everything that had happened and the way that they treated her, only after the public showed how much they love her or Earl Spencer gave a rousing speech that then the royals would be like, "Oh, maybe we shouldn't have done that." I feel like it's even weirder to admit fault and say, "Oh, we can reinstate it." It's almost like you really have to stick with your decisions at that point. Yeah. It just shows how isolated I think they are from public opinion that, you know, I'm sure all the courtiers knew that um, Diana was more popular than anyone else in the family by a long shot. But I'm sure they made sure that the queen never found that out. (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. And that's why, you know, thinking of how popular she is, it makes me think of how popular Harry and Meghan are. And like you said, with the feud with William and what sort of dynamics are playing out behind closed doors. And I also wonder you know, how we're ever going to know what the real story is, like between the feud and all of that. I feel like it would have, I mean, I think it eventually leaked out that the feud was between the brothers and not Kate and Megan. But I just, I want a book exactly like Diana's with a much happier ending in like 30 years so we can get all of the royal gossip that we want to oh, know the answers to. Megan's going to do a tell-all at some point. Megan's going to pull a Morton. She 100% is. I think once the queen dies and also i feel like charles will be king for like three years but i think after that we're going to see a whole different monarchy and then yes maybe megan will have her moment that would be yeah i think even with charles it's going to be completely different like i think he's gonna like like tear the rule book apart like yeah i think he thinks that he is really really smart and that he has some really really good ideas <laughs> and i think he actually is one of the only people in that family that like reads a book yes. you know he's definitely very so, smart yeah and at least so, believes in I don't know. climate change i mean i know that philip does too but philip has essentially no power so at least we're getting one figurehead that believes climate change is real Yeah. Can you believe after it was either after the Morton book or after the Martin Bashir interview, how it said um, 
Prince Philip sent her like five really mean letters in a row. Right. And that like they started off really horrible and then ended semi-affectionate. I just can't even imagine because also Prince Philip doesn't play into this book at all. I think he's mentioned like five times. Yeah. So it's just weird to imagine him sitting down and being like, this is a really good idea. But of course, I don't think anyone would tell him no. I really want to read the letters and I want them out. Um, oh, how yeah. about the fact that 15 years worth of her letters went missing after her death? Right. And they Someone said that, just destroyed them. Yes. And that they said that they like shredded a lot of stuff or they put them in the Spencer house. But I think that they're just completely, yeah, they're gone. And it's like, that's a part of history. That's something that if the royals were thinking, like you would put that in a museum or you would make that an exhibit, like you would have a huge exhibit of Diana's life and include well, important things like that. I think that those letters probably had sensitive information that the palace didn't want getting out. And that's why they destroyed them. Right, because it, they, because even the phone calls, all she did was like really complain about the royals, and when those came out, I'm sure that they were like destroy, yeah, absolutely everything. It is really sad to think that they stripped her whole apartment of everything that she decorated and didn't save it for the boys. Mm-hmm. I love that they're like we thought people would steal things, but it's like it's within the walls of the palace. You have people guarding it. So I don't, I don't know like when these looters are going to come because then that would put the security of everyone else at risk. Also the way that after her death and after her and Charles separation, they would just burn all of their wedding gifts and furniture. I was like, I thought you cared about climate change. Like what are you doing? I I, honestly, I'm so happy you brought that up. That was one of my favorite details where they were just like anything they didn't care about. They just made a huge fire or donated some things. I don't know. That was just, that was an amazing detail. It shows how much they hated each other. Yeah. They couldn't even pass these things down to their kids or give them to someone else. Like what else did you burn? Yeah. And they just like, it also shows how out of touch they are that they think that burning furniture is the answer. Like people need (laughs) furniture. Just give it to someone. You freaking Give someone a chair. I know. I'm sure the people that were in charge of starting this fire were like, God damn it. Wish I could smuggle this to my home. Yeah. But yeah, or auction it off for charity. Do that. Like, what are, what are you burning if not furniture and letters? Like, are they burning old clothes or I don't right. know. Yeah, you can donate everything. Um, I loved the detail of her silk cushions that were embroidered with, I'm going to, re- I highlighted it. These are what it Amazing. said. Amazing. So in, in Kensington Palace. Like Diana had these silk cushions that were embroidered with humorous motifs, their words, not mine, such as good (laughs) girls go to (laughs) good girls go to heaven, bad girls go everywhere. You have to kiss a lot of frogs before you find a prince, which is so shady. She had that after they got divorced. She had that in Kensington (laughs) Palace. And the final one was, I feel sorry for people who don't drink because when they wake up in the morning, that's the best they're going to feel all day. It's wild like would diana have had live laugh love at some point on a cushion a hundred percent so yes totally she would have had like a beach themed downstairs bathroom right she oh and in her bathroom she had new this is really weird it's and super funny weird. but also weird that she had newspaper cartoons depicting prince charles talking to his plants and their visit to the pope in the vatican in her I- bathroom I didn't understand that at all. And I feel like in the days after the 
the divorce, she can't let go of that part of her life. I feel like she almost needed a common enemy to like rally against. Like Charles provided something to hate and something to blame and not to move forward. And then the fact that she still has these cartoons, like to me, and even Andrew Morton says this, like she literally couldn't let go of some things and couldn't change as fast as her friends thought that she would. What, like, can you imagine having a cartoon of your famous ex in your bathroom? Why? It's so weird. It's so weird. It's so, so weird. Also unrelated, um, but when I went to London for the first time when I was 12, I bought a shirt that said, good girls go to heaven, bad girls go to London. So I just, I feel some, uh, some like commonness with Diana. Yeah. Oh I still my have God. It. You need to turn it into a cushion. <laughs> I will. I will immediately. Oh, that's that was, so good. It also made it sound, it made her sound a little bit like a hoarder. Like there were like every spare inch of this room was covered in photos and mementos. And they said that it was because like she felt so alone growing up that she really wanted things to remind her of like the people she loved. Oh, yeah. It said like since she had her only comfort was like material comforts and not emotional comforts. I, I thought it was messed up that let's talk about not to make it too negative but just in the you know in honor of like balanced journalism what were some things where you thought she behaved a little bit unfairly or that she was in the wrong because there was I thought that she she complained a little too much about Charles's parenting I just was like that's not cool to put that out there because your kids are going to read that and it it's not good. Definitely. And I think this job, to its credit, does a really, really good job of letting the reader see, like, hey, there were some moments where she didn't make the right decisions. Um, I think when she gave the public interview saying it was a little crowded with three of us in the marriage, I thought that was not good because they weren't officially divorced yet and that it was done in secret. I think... um, That interview was the worst idea ever. She ruined everything with that interview. She really she, did. She really, really did. That was a huge one. Um, and then I think her continual, like, I'm going to confront Camilla because I think that just fueled her obsession with Camilla. Oh, I'm trying to think. What What are some of yours while I, I think on it? Well, let's talk about the interview because two things. First thing is Martin Bashir, the guy who did the interview, is on Celebrity X Factor in the UK right now. And What timing? He, it is so cute. I literally was watching it on Sunday and I cried because he's saying, Elle is for the way you look at me. And then he talked about how it was dedicated to his brother. And then I, and he's just so cute. Like he's just this cute middle-aged man, like living Aww. his dream of singing after decades of being in like broadcast journalism. So Google that, watch the video. It's so cute. But the, but then I was searching his name on Twitter and I found all these crazy Michael Jackson stands who hate him because I didn't realize he was the one who did that like BBC documentary where he lived with Michael Jackson for a few years. And he sort of was one of the first people to expose Michael Jackson for being a pedophile. But wow. apparently he tampered with the interviews to make it seem more like he was a pedophile. So I'm very torn on that because I'm like, Obviously, if he tampered, I'm not, I, ha- I didn't do enough research on this to find out what the truth is. But if he tampered with the evidence, obviously that's unforgivable. But at the right. same time, I can't believe people hate him for exposing a pedophile. Right. Yes. And I think whenever we write about Michael Jackson, I mean, we get so 
many people that are like, you're just spreading lies. And so I think the Michael Jackson stands are, are really the ones that they just refuse to believe that Michael did anything wrong and that it's this huge conspiracy against him. But yeah, knowing that and just the fact that they, I don't know, that he, obviously this interview was really good for his career. I don't think it was good for Diana at all. So mm -hmm. I think, I don't know. I just, I think it was such a bad idea all around. And yeah. I think that it really hurt any chance of like a, an acrimonious divorce. Yeah, I think so. Let's explain to the listeners if they don't know. So what happened was Diana decided that she this was after this book even came out. Yeah, book so, came out in 92. This came out in 96, I think. Is that right? I think it was earlier. I think it was like 94 or 95 okay. because it was right. before they got divorced. Yeah, so it was like during the separation. Yeah. So after this book, they got separated uh diana and charles but they their party line was we have no plans for divorce we're just gonna coexist blah 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 blah. with both of them being pretty immature about it and nobody trying to make anything better like it's infuriating to read about so then after that diana for some reason decided that she needed to tell her side of the story again right um i mean i'm sure part of the reason is because like we mentioned earlier, the palace is pretty known for leaking information strategically. And there was like basically a smear campaign of palace sources talking about how crazy and unhinged she was. Mm -hmm. And everyone was starting to think she was crazy and unhinged, which, by the way, the more conservative British newspapers still, when they have to mention her, they put in a, a little parenthetical aside about how crazy she was to this day. It drives wow. me nuts. Yeah. So – so she decided that she needed to have her say again, and she decided to bring in this journalist, Martin Bashir, and have him interview her on camera in Kensington Palace. She dismissed, she dismissed her entire staff for the day so that no one would know and so that the queen wouldn't find out. And she just did this tell-all interview with him, which is completely unheard of. I mean, the royals just don't do that. So something really interesting that I highlighted in the book was um, – the fact that the Princess of Wales, a major international figure, and the BBC, a leading public broadcasting company, had to go to such extraordinary lengths to record an interview makes a mockery of the notion that we live in an open society. Indeed, if the program had been the smuggled testimony of a Middle Eastern princess, there would have been outraged protests about a repressive regime. Which is so true. It's so true. I feel like those were like two of the most important sentences in this. The fact that Diana had to keep secret her role in this book. And then, um, yeah, with the BBC, I'm actually reading a book right now on how the BBC is like really corrupt and not a free press. And I'm not far along in it enough to be able to speak on it. But it just it reinforces the idea that, yeah. Like the the palace has so much control over what's printed even today. And yeah. so that's why it is hard when they are suing members of the press. It's like we, like you said, we're only given the information that you allow us, you know, to report. And sometimes they don't even like deny things when I reach out for comments. So it's just such an interesting system and so different than how things are in the U.S. Yeah, I guess that's why I don't understand why they're suing them because I'm like, you guys have it so much easier if you were a freaking, okay, let's compare the royal family to the presidency and let's look at Monica Lewinsky as someone who was sexually intertwined with a president and look at how much of a freaking beating she's from press. I don't think that 
anyone in the British royal family has really dealt with that level of vitriol and hate and your privacy being invaded, you know? Right. Like, so magnified by how many more people there are here and how many more people you could send after someone. The one thing that they do, that they have done here that's totally beyond the pale is hacking voicemails and yes. listening in on phone calls. That's insane. Right. But I and think that's it's newspaper the, of the world started that news, I think in news the of the world, yeah. News of the world. And Piers Morgan was involved. He claims that he didn't do it, but he's named in their new lawsuit. I'm sure you know. But yeah. I think that that phone tapping and hacking is a side effect and a byproduct of the fact that they're effectively muzzled by the palace. Like there are just certain things they can't do or say. So that's I think so that's interesting. That's why they become like malignant in that way. Wow, I really never thought of that. I sort of thought that um, Harry and Meghan, I, I don't know, because a lot of publications over here don't publish the faces of celebrity kids. And so I wondered if Harry and Meghan were going to impose any of that with Archie just because they waited to like introduce him to the world. And I wondered, I even on this past tour, I wondered if they would bring him out in front of the cameras just because I feel like they would be the ones in the royal family to be like, oh, we're not going to parade our kids around anymore and we don't have to do that. Um, See, I think the way that they have handled Archie so far is so misguided because they're, he's not any more private than any of the other royal kids. We just have all these like palace sources saying that Harry and Meghan are obsessed with his privacy while they're also parading him around. It just makes them look like such hypocrites and they just shouldn't have said anything at all. Yeah, that's what was so interesting to me about, like, why they brought him out on the tour. I was like, I, I honestly didn't think that they would just in the way that they've handled him. And I, I think it was definitely so odd that we didn't know that Megan gave birth in a hospital or what hospital or when she was giving birth. And I understand people's frustration for just, like, wanting to report the news or being confused or this is the way that it's always done. Um, but that was, yeah, that set a really interesting precedent for also not releasing the names of the godparents. And I feel like when he gets to school age or like with nannies and stuff, it's going to be a whole other ball game too. Cause I'm yeah. sure he will not go to Thomas's Battersea or wherever George and Charlotte go. Right. Cause it's like on the one hand, yeah, I don't think anyone needs to know where the kid's born or who the godparents are. But on the other hand, it's not that big a deal. People forget it two seconds after they read it. And totally. by denying, by saying, making a stand and saying, we're not going to do this, they made it such a bigger, more negative story than it needed to be. Yes, because then it's like the intriguing angle of like, no one's going to know who the godparents are. Like then people are just speculating and then they're bothering people and all of their friends when I think, yeah, I really couldn't name uh, George or Charlotte's godparents. Like I know it's a mix of like family and like they're, they're really posh close friends, but yeah, that's because it's not a secret. I actually don't care. But with Archie, I really, really want to know if it's Jessica Mulroney and like that whole crew. Yeah. It's just like, and I think that stuff is all Harry too. And I think it's again, just him using the press as a scapegoat and just, you know, believing in a misguided way that if he was not famous, his life would have been better when I'm just like, dude, there's, there's people that are dying to quote. <laughs> to Kardashian. quote, Yes. Oh, <laughs> our fellow idol, Courtney Kardashian. Yeah. Did you like clock the fact that Diana didn't have any say in her kids' names? Yes. Well, 
So she did have say, right? Yeah, it was like she basically said it was either William and Henry or Arthur Arthur or Albert. Albert, yes. Yeah, so So, she was like, yeah, hell no, they're not going to be Arthur and Albert. So that was what she picked. Right, yeah. When you're given choices like that, of course, it will be William and Henry. But yeah, just the whole time, sort of like with this Divas podcast, like she was so squarely living under the shadow of her husband. And I think it was so interesting that she started dating Dodie where he lived in the shadow of his father Mm -hmm. and then also was really like powerful, but also hurt and sad. And it almost seemed like she was attracted to what she knew and that he would have fulfilled that for her. Would that have been a good romance or would she have continued down the path of people who were like Charles? I know it's totally diverting topics, but. No, it's so true. And there was a quote in the beginning part where she says, um, where it's just the rambling thing of things that she's said. And she says something like, I, like Charles and I are both kind of sensitive. And yes, she says he will always suffer, meaning Charles, because he's like me. There's something in us that attracts that department, whereas my two sisters are blissfully happy being detached from various situations. So I think what she's saying is that she and Charles are both people who overthink and they stew in like catastrophizing whatever's going on in their lives. And I think that's what you're saying. Like Dodie is the same. Mm -hmm. And I think there was also an element of her in this book that's told from her point of view, really clinging on to perceived insults and mishaps because it sort of fed her own narrative where at certain times I just wanted someone to be like, look, everyone doesn't hate you. Like you got to chill, you know? (laughs) Right. Right. Or even um, in some parts of the book, her friends were like, she would just obsess over the same things, like the same questions uh, and the same stuff with Charles where it's like, it felt like that subject was super, super comfortable for her. And she really couldn't break out of that mold at all. And I wondered if any of her friends, I mean, it said that she abandoned some, friends or like cast people out at the wrong time but I wonder like how many people were like listen I can't talk about this anymore this has been the same for 15 years we have to talk about something else I just wonder because if one of my girlfriends complained for 15 years I would be like I'm out of ideas I really just don't know how to be your sounding board anymore it is the most frustrating thing when someone in your life is complaining about the same thing over and over and refusing to make changes and just sort of relishing in the complaint of it all. Right, right. Granted, none of my friends are trapped in a feudal monarchy <laughs> system. Um, but yeah, I just wonder what her other friends would say. And I liked at the end of the book where he was like, the more time that passes from Diana's death, the more critics we, or the more people feel safe to criticize some parts like you were talking about. Like there were some incidents where Diana did not handle things correctly because she was human, but it's interesting to hear more of her critics speak or what they think about her legacy. I think the really important thing to remember that a lot of the like high class people in the UK forget is that she was thrown to the friggin' wolves with right. no help whatsoever. Right. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see. So I think the queen has suppressed pretty much all mention of her memory, which they go yeah. through in the book that she basically would prefer to just pretend that she never existed. Right. And obviously whenever Charles becomes king, that's going to continue. Um, 
But then I think whenever William gets in, I think is when we're going to start seeing like airports named after her and like her finally getting her due. Definitely. And especially the fact that they like in 20 years after her death, they finally erected a statue in her honor. It's like, oh, I from my perspective, I didn't become super, super obsessed with this until a few years ago. So it is weird to look back and be like, wow, it took them so long to talk about it. And it's because they were raised by their father who probably didn't want any mention of it. Or like you said, the queen is basically trying to rewrite her out of history. So how could they have acknowledged their mom when they were so young and didn't know that this was happening? Right. And I think, yeah. And then the the one event that they've really ever had for her was that memorial concert mm-hmm. um, in like the early 2000s. And, oh, I just wanted to talk to you about Elton John. I know he's definitely a friend of the Royals. And also... I think whenever, I think he was definitely trying to help, especially with like Harry and Meghan and the private jet and everything, um, like that whole fiasco. But uh, for people who don't know, Meghan and Harry took four private flights in 11 days and they preached this very environmental message. And a lot of people were saying that they were very hypocritical for doing that because yes, flying private, there are so many carbon emissions. And even if you offset it with a donation and they plant trees, it just doesn't look good for anyone. But it was interesting to me that Elton defended and said that he was the one that got them the private jet and everything, because that's a sort of story where I feel like we had one photo of Harry and Meghan getting on a private plane. If he never acknowledged it, I don't think it would have turned into the story that it did, where then it's like, oh, Elton John gave credibility to the story that they're flying private all the time and going on these private vacations. So I think he actually made, he was trying to help and invoke Princess Diana and like, how unfair the press is, but I think he just made it so much worse. He made it so much worse. I thought that that amount of flack they got for that was so unfair. Like, I mean, first of all, like they don't even preach that much about climate stuff. Right. They're not Greta. Yeah. Yeah. What have they said? You know, like maybe they mentioned it once, but, and second of all, like rich people take private jets. Like they just do. Right. And, Like, I don't know. And I do like, like, to be clear, I like that Elton John is bringing them into the fold and sort of showing them the ropes because I think he's helping them because he's been worldwide famous for decades. And I think he's giving them the kind of help that the Royals probably won't give them. And also at his concert I went to last year, he had like, he played, it wasn't Candle in the Wind, it was Border Song. And he showed a little reel of all the people he finds most in, uh, influential and inspiring and he had Mm -hmm. Megan and Harry but he didn't have Will and Kate which I found really interesting that is oh so shady yeah yeah definitely playing favorites but yeah yeah, back with like the private plane stuff like I think you're right the flack that they received for that was so crazy because can you I mean the airport is hell for anyone can you imagine if you had this at your disposal everyone would fly private and also the amount of harassment they would get with a tiny, tiny baby flying commercial. And then they eventually did fly commercial. I forget where they went. Um, but it was somewhere where like the whole family got on a commercial flight. And I was like, I just feel like that is so dangerous. And that totally puts them at risk. And there's so much harassment. Like, this is not what we should be faulting the royals for. Like, this actually really makes sense with any rich person or any celebrity. Like, everybody does this. Yeah. What we should be doing is trying to think of ways to make that travel cleaner because it's never going away. No. 
God, the second I can afford a private jet, I'm getting one. I just, I don't even care how many trees I'm killing. You will exactly. never see me again. And I think, I think a big part of the issue is, and this is obviously anecdotal and my British listeners will either agree or get pissed at me, but I find that there is a lot of anxiety in, in, in British culture about virtue signaling and I'm preaching, quote unquote, and like wanting attention. Like, I think that in America, we're very into individualism, which has a lot of really horrible effects, especially especially with the economy and the way that we treat people who have less money and the fact that we don't have a social safety net. Those are like the dark sides of individualism. But the bright side of individualism is when we see someone acting crazy or having a dream or like being a weirdo, we're like, oh, that's interesting. Like, cool. Right. Give Whereas- them a reality show. Right, exactly. <laughs> Whereas here, I feel like that behavior is slapped down very quickly. And I think that that is a big thing that people are disliking about Meghan and Harry that they can't put their finger on. I'm talking like British people right. because they're like, they're not celebrities. This is what British people always say. They're not celebrities. I'm like, yes, they are. They're if like, they are the picture of global celebrity. I can't yeah. think of anyone else more famous in the world than them right now, honestly. And- yeah, and they just they get annoyed at them for virtue signaling and for telling people how to live. And it's like, okay, I don't understand why you have a royal family then if it's not to like lead by example and live in a way that that is like supposed to be the pinnacle of how you're supposed to live and like be a nice person. But I guess that's not the point. I just don't get it. Right. Like, wouldn't we hate them more if they were just like, oh, by the way, we're going to party every night. We're going to buy a palace in Monaco. Like, it's super, super great that they are preaching these, like, I don't know, doing more for mental illness and doing more for women's education that, yeah, to me, it's really hard when people criticize their mission or something, because I'm like, wouldn't it be worse if Prince Harry, like, bought the Playboy Mansion and never got married and, like, that was his life? Like, that's definitely something to criticize, but yeah, trying to live the right way. I I think that they're just, they're in such a position that they really can't do. They're never going to get a hundred percent credit, just like princess Diana never did. Like no one is ever universally going to love them. They're always, always going to have critics, no matter how good their intentions are. Right. And I guess the thing is like, I just don't perceive them as being preachy at all. No, not at all. I don't. That's what I'm saying with this, like cultural thing. I'm like, where when did they when did they preach i don't get it why are we mad at them for like right. i don't know it's not like megan still has her own instagram and she's doing like paid sponsorships or ads it's like yeah they're definitely going to give a speech they're not going to be preachy but if they are going to go to an aids clinic or something like that then they're going to speak about something that they're passionate about so yeah i don't i don't see it as as preachy at all i think yeah, it's just such a difficult position. It's almost like when Kim Kardashian is criticized for now taking on the legal system and um, trying to do prison reform where people super dismiss her and they're like, she's just a reality TV star. And it's like, but you hated her when she was just a reality TV star. And now that she's trying to be a lawyer, like a very, very respectable position, it just shows that she'll, some people will just hate her no matter what she does. Yeah, 100%. Um. Okay, so let's start to wrap. What was your favorite Diana Diva moment? My 
Favorite Diana Diva moment. Oh my God. Um, I loved at the end when she just started living her best life and going on all of these luxury, like, or luxurious vacations and these yachts and like giving Dodie all these crazy gifts because it was just like a new form of freedom for her. I think she finally didn't care and not caring was her sort of diva moment. Yeah. What about you? Um, I really liked, I liked that she sort of made Kensington Palace as basic as humanly possible. <laughs> <laughs> that she just was like, you know what? I'm going to go on whatever the 1995 version of Pinterest is and right. get the cheesiest pillows ever. I liked that she, when she's talking to Morton about picking out her engagement ring and she's like, they brought out these giant rings. They were nuggets. That's what she says. Like, yes, she says, I mean, nuggets. yeah, I love that. Like that. She was just like squealing about the fact that this was going to be something that she got to have. And that was literally going to become like a crown jewel basically. Right. Oh, that's such a, it's such a good moment. And I think I liked I liked the Camilla basement confrontation. That was amazing. I feel like it, it was like the part in a movie that you've been waiting for. And like when it finally happens, like I can only imagine that scene and just that like Charles was so mad and all of their friends were so mad. And that Camilla was just like, oh, this isn't some little girl. Like Diana finally kind of got to tell her off. Yeah. And she also had no regard for anyone else's comfort in that moment. Like nope. she just was like, I'm going to make everyone so uncomfortable because right. I hate this lady. And like, she wasn't even supposed to go to the party. She just That's... was like, screw this. Yeah. No one expects me to go, but like, what's up? Oh, also favorite diva moment. Um, when she wore the black dress to the serpentine gallery, I just like those photos are forever iconic. That dress, the revenge dress. That was just the coolest moment. Yeah, that was great. It was, yeah, that was really, really good. Um, okay, cool. I think that's a good place to end. Yay. Thank you so much for having me on. This is Thank so you. fun to like. Some people think Diva's a bitch. I never said that. Diva behavior. Great, uh, great gowns, beautiful gowns. <laughs> of course, I don't trust you. Diva behavior, the podcast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.